It's been 15 years since 12-year-old Jalik Rainwalker vanished. His disappearance from rural upstate New York was ruled a probable child homicide. But no one has ever been charged, and his body has never been found. This is Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. I'm Jessica Marshall. And I'm Wendy Lepertor. In this podcast from the Times Union, we'll take a deep dive into this mystery, the case of a missing child that has unsettled New York's capital region and beyond for more than a decade. Episode four, The Yellow Fleece. Before we begin, a word of caution. The story we are about to tell involves situations that may be very disturbing to some listeners. So please take care as you listen. Lisa Hudson was watching the kids in the 5th and 6th grade classes on the playground at Salem Central School one winter's day. It was 2005. She was a teacher's aide at the time. Part of her job was to chaperone the middle schoolers during lunch and recess periods every day. That day, she noticed that one of the kids was not wearing a jacket. It was freezing outside. She says she pulled him aside and told him to go to the nurse's office and grab a coat there. The school kept spare coats and outerwear for kids there who needed them. He uh, immediately said, I don't know why anyone cares what I'm wearing. I live in a tent, Mrs. Hudson. And at that point, it caught me off guard. Lisa Hudson knew his family. She'd gone trick-or-treating with her kids at his house in Salem. Why was Jalik Rainwalker telling her he lived in a tent? I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, my family's building a house and right now it's under construction, but we're living out, I'm living outside in a tent. Hudson says Jalik ultimately relented and went inside to get a coat. She says she saw him later that day. He was wearing a vibrant yellow fleece jacket that he picked up in the nurse's office. She says she couldn't shake what he told her about his living conditions. It didn't feel right. And when something didn't feel right with a kid in school, well, she was a mandated reporter. I went directly to my superior. I explained to her my concerns. And at that point, she said that she would, you know, take it to the level that she needed to. And it went from there. Uh, no one contacted me, though, to ask me what I was told by Jalik. No CPS or anything like that, though. Lisa Hudson was let go soon after due to budget cuts. 
She says the situation has haunted her since she heard Jalik disappeared. When I first saw the picture on the news, I was devastated. It, it triggered me, um, mainly because I had an interaction with him that I had saw him in that fleece, that I had asked the people that were above me to reach out for help for him. And then I feel guilty. I feel like I should have done more. After Jalik went missing, his parents described him as possibly wearing a yellow fleece. We were not able to confirm whether Lisa Hudson's reporting led to any investigation. Lisa's superior at the time did not respond to a request for comment for this podcast, and a spokesman for the Washington County Child Protective Services Agency said he could not discuss the specifics of any complaint or subsequent report due to state laws. But by Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald's own admission, in a 2007 interview that aired on Albany's News 10, they had been subject to a Child Protective Services investigation involving Jalik several years before. This 28-minute interview from December of 2007 is no longer available online. But we obtained a verified copy of it. WTEN's management would not allow us to use any audio from it in our podcast. They also prohibited us from talking on the record to the reporter who conducted that interview, Anya Tucker. So we're paraphrasing here. Jocelyn McDonald told WTEN the incident occurred three months after Jalik had come to live with them. She says he told his social worker that his foster parents, Jocelyn and Stephen, locked him in his bedroom at night, and that they punished him more often than they did their older biological son. Jocelyn said that was true, quote, because our older son had always lived with us and knew all the rules and was not mentally ill, unquote. When the couple from the rural upstate New York County first took Jalik into their family as a foster child, they lived in a rented four-bedroom house in Salem, New York. That's about 10 minutes away from Greenwich, allegedly where Jalik disappeared. They had regular, mandated visits from social workers from Parsons Children and Family Center. That's again the organization that's responsible for Jalik's foster care placement. Jocelyn McDonald said the CPS report that came from Jalik saying he was locked in his bedroom ended up unfounded. That means a CPS official found no evidence of abuse or neglect. Typically, unfounded reports are kept confidential. You wouldn't know about them unless someone told you. But Jocelyn spoke openly about it during this 2007 interview. She called it a lie. She said Jalik made it up because of his, quote, mental illness. Kids like Jalik are scared of being abandoned, she said. So they try to separate themselves from the people who love them. 
Jalik had been diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. Children with this condition have trouble forming attachments to caregivers. They also have trouble regulating their emotions and behaviors. Jalik had been receiving therapy when he came to live with Stephen and Jocelyn, according to what his previous foster family told the Times Union in 2007. That couple, who has not spoken publicly since then, also told the Times Union that Jalik had problems controlling his anger. He'd been prone to violent outbursts in their home. They feared him, they said. was kind of a little charismatic. Yeah. He was in this big, bright smile. Oh, I know. And people would make over him because he was very attractive, but yeah. also he was sweet. I yeah. Mean, he really was. And yeah. he, I'm sure That's he Barbara really talking to Wendy. Barbara is Jalik's adoptive grandmother, Jocelyn McDonald's mother. She lives in Florida now. She's soft-spoken with short gray hair. She's in her early 70s, a potter by trade, and a widow. Her husband, Dennis, died in 2018. Wendy met Barbara while she was in town. They talked about Barbara's memories of Jalik. Sure he acted at home. I saw one of his acting outs, and, yeah. um, but he was flailing around. He wasn't like, he more would focus on himself. He was mm. angry with yeah. his behavior right. or frustrated. He would get so frustrated if he Barbara does not dispute claims by Jalik's parents that he had violent outbursts. But she makes a point of saying that she never witnessed him posing a threat to others. In a conversation we had with her on the phone a few months earlier, she remembered her grandson most as a sweet and loving boy. She says she met him the day he came to live with Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald. It was the day before his eighth birthday. When I met him, he, you know, he gave me a big hug and smile and, um, you know, said, you know, he had a new mama and papa and uh, was very sweet, you know, and we played. And then the next day I went back up for his birthday uh, party. And so that's you know, it was a very easy meeting, and he was very loving and, and very sweet. During the next few years, she would take Jalik for overnights at her house. He called it Granny Camp. She and Dennis took him to Florida when he turned 10. She says she let him choose where they went. He chose SeaWorld. The one time she says she witnessed an outburst from Jalik, she'd just arrived to his house to visit. Jocelyn had been trying to get him to do his math homework. Jocelyn knew I was coming up, but she had told the children it was going to be a surprise. And when I drove up, I could hear yelling. And uh, when I went up to the door, uh, Jalik was thrashing around and yelling. He was, his, he was standing up and he was throwing his arms back and forth and yelling that he didn't want to do the work. And, um, and as soon as he saw me, it, he changed, uh, you know, and he calmed down and smiled. Let's back up for a minute. Who are Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald? Stephen Kerr grew up abroad, according to police and Barbara Reilly, in Afghanistan and Egypt. 
His father, Graham, was a Foreign Service officer. When Stephen graduated high school, he enrolled at Hampshire College in central Massachusetts. Jocelyn's father was in the Army. Barbara says they moved around a lot. Texas, Germany, France, D.C., Kentucky, Kansas, and more. She describes her daughter as an introvert. She didn't have many friends, Barbara says. She liked to spend her time alone reading or doing crafts. My daughter and I were extremely, extremely close. We did a lot together. I, um, you know, there were a number of times where after she, especially after she got married, you know, where she was living in a separate state, but we would always see each other frequently, talk on the phone often, uh, do trips together. We did a lot of road trips and traveling together. Barbara eventually ended up living in upstate New York. When Jocelyn was pregnant with her first child, Barbara says they went to a class together at the Omega Institute for Holistic Studies in the Hudson Valley. Jocelyn made friends there with a couple of Hampshire College alums. They introduced her to Stephen. They eventually married, they had two more biological children together, and ended up moving to Salem, New York. There were times, though, when she would shut me out of her life, when she was pregnant with her second child. Uh, she basically, for almost the whole pregnancy, uh, she decided she just didn't want to have any contact with me. Right before her second child's birth, Barbara says Jocelyn reconnected. She uh, sent me a letter and said, you can come see me now. The whole thing was such a shock to me because I was like, what did I do? And she just said, I don't want to talk about it, but I, I want you in my life again. Barbara says she remembers when Jocelyn told her they were going to take on foster children. I had talked to Jocelyn when I first came up here and she was doing foster care. And she's talking about, you know, um, foster care and adoption. And I said, if you want my advice, my advice is wait until your children are older. Then do what you consider a good deed and help children. But wait until your oh, children yeah. are older. Right. Because then you have your family. Barbara says Jocelyn ignored her advice. Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald officially adopted Jalik Llewellyn Franklin Boyd in 2003. He legally became Jalik Rainwalker. Barbara says her daughter came up with the surname Rainwalker. She says Jocelyn went for a walk in the rain during her first pregnancy. She came back with the idea. It became the legal surname for all five of her children, according to court documents that we viewed. We'll be right back. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back to Rainwalker, the Lost Boy. During the first part of Jalik's life with the Kerr-McDonald family, he went to public school in Salem. He took karate lessons. 
He went to theater camp in Vermont for two summers. That's where he met Abby Andrews. And we got paired up somehow in a small group. And yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time together. We ate lunch together and we performed together, practiced together, um, sang, danced, did a lot of activities together. Abby says she remembers Jalique as someone who seemed to have a lot of confidence and charisma. Um, I do have some memories of him being a little upset sometimes. He was easily um, offended or he was just kind of sensitive. Um, But then again, we were young. He seemed like everybody else in my eyes, uh, just a normal little boy. Earlier in this podcast, Abby told us that she remembered wanting a play date with Jalik but they couldn't communicate outside of camp. Jalik didn't have access to the internet, and she didn't know why. Um, It was just a hard no about ever having a relationship with Jalik outside of camp. Was it his parents, or? I don't know. I I can't speak on that. I I don't know. Um, I just think it would have been hard to have a play date with him. In the years since Jalik has been missing, Barbara really has been critical of the way her daughter and son-in-law parented Jalik. She says they were loving, but militaristic. She would tell me over and over again that Jalik had consequences, and they weren't punishments, but they were consequences for their action. So if they um, didn't do their schoolwork or they acted out in some way, the consequence was Uh, extra work or physical work or uh, shunning. Barbara says Jocelyn used the term consequence, but she used the word punish during the WTEN interview. She said that they did, quote, punish Jalik more than her older son. Mary McGowan, who runs the Reactive Attachment Disorder Training and Education Program, ATTACH, and who herself has raised children diagnosed with it, says punishment and enforcement of consequences is not effective for those children. In fact, it can make their behavior worse. First of all, we need to be educated. We need to have the knowledge of what it is. When parents come in with traditional parenting, like behavioral modification, you know, punishment, if you don't do this, you won't get that, sticker charts, delayed gratification, get a C and I'll give you $10, $20, All of those things don't work with our children because they don't have the executive functioning to do that. I think if we can get parents to see the iceberg, if you will, When parents reach out to us with frustration, it's when they're looking at the tip of the iceberg, they're looking at the emotions, the behaviors, the rages over homework, snapping of pencils, flipping the tables over. And it's not because they're being, you know, intentionally disruptive. They're feeling like a failure. They don't understand it. Their anxiety takes over and boom, they're into that uh, midbrain, which doesn't allow them the capability of calming and soothing themselves. The house his parents were building in late 2005, as Jalik described to Lisa Hudson on the playground that winter, became a one-room cabin on the outskirts of Greenwich, on a rural road called Raven Way. 
It did not have plumbing or internet. Electricity was limited to a generator running a few hours a night. According to Barbara Reilly, they built it to live out a more eco-friendly lifestyle. Have you ever had anyone that lived off the grid before? I mean, is that something that's foreboding for foster parents or no? Well, can you describe to me what you mean by live off the grid? That's Kim Cummins from Northern Rivers. That's the organization that runs Parsons Children and Family Center. Well, no electric, no plumbing, um, you know, outhouse, basically. Um, So in in my personal experience, I have never certified, nor would I have certified a home in that condition. Back in the day. These are new houses. Jalik's family no longer owns the property on Raven Way. Wendy and I drove by it one day last summer just to see it. Just this scrub. Here it is. This is it. I knew it wasn't that far in. This is it? This is where they lived? The cabin is small. It's made of wooden beams and stone. The mortar between the stones is embedded with what looks like the butt ends of colored glass wine bottles. From our vantage point on the street, they look like glittering jewels. About 20 feet from the cabin are two dilapidated wooden outhouses. They look like they haven't been used in a long time. Jalik had been officially adopted before his family moved to Raven Way. And once a child is adopted, according to Kim Cummins, Parsons' social workers no longer make visits. If a family still needs support, she says, they can refer them to community services. The parents, however, can apply to continue to receive what's called an adoption subsidy. It's a monthly stipend for care of therapeutic children like Jalik. They can get it until the child turns 21. Stephen and Jocelyn were receiving $1,500 per month after they adopted him. That's according to Elaine Person, who served on the Parsons board at the time. Barbara says initially she observed Jocelyn and Stephen to be very attentive to Jalik's diagnosis. She says they took him to specialists all over the Northeast to try to get him help. Uh, And he was in therapy and he was on medication for the first year or two. Yeah. But then they just stopped, you know, they stopped all counseling. We could not get Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald to talk to us for this podcast about their life with Jalik or his disappearance. Jocelyn did not respond to repeated requests by phone and certified letter. Stephen declined to speak with us when we found him in Greenwich last summer. Admittedly, it was hard to tell this story without their input. But a friend was willing to speak recently on their behalf. This friend could not meet us in person, and he asked to remain anonymous. He lives in Greenwich and says he fears retribution from people whom he says have vilified his friends in the court of public opinion. We felt his perspective was important to have in this story, though, so we agreed to his anonymity. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll call him Mike. Mike describes himself as good friends with Stephen Kerr and Jocelyn McDonald. Their kids went to school together. He says they're good people, 
and great parents. All of their life was directed toward the welfare of their family, and there was so much love in that family, and they were, uh, felt that they were in a position to, uh, they had such a strong family system going that they were able to expand that care and love to kids outside the family who needed help. Mike is very protective of his friends. He truly believes they had the best of intentions with Jalik. But as he observed, Jalik was a tremendously difficult child to care for. But it was really clear from the things that were going on with Jalik that they had been, a situation had been foisted on them that was way beyond their expectations or capacity to deal with. Uh, my, my take and many of my friends' take is that they were, uh, the foster care system put them in a very difficult situation that they were not prepared for. Uh, but had to face, and they did that with courage and love. Jalik was pulled from public schools and put in a homeschool program by 2007. Stephen and Jocelyn admitted that they were trying to reverse Jalik's adoption and put him back into foster care in the month before Jalik disappeared. They said the breaking point for them was when Jalik verbally threatened a child in his homeschool program in October of 2007. During the WTEN interview, Jocelyn said, quote, For 11 days, we worked with this child who was in serious crisis, unquote. She said they called therapists, pediatricians, and even called St. Anne's Institute in Albany. St. Anne's is a nonprofit agency that offers residential and community services to young women and girls in crisis. They also offer sex abuse prevention programs for young men. Jocelyn also admits here that they were looking to put Jalik back into the foster system because she and Stephen believed, quote, there are certain services you can only access through foster care, unquote. For six of the 11 days, Jocelyn says they worked with Jalik, quote, in crisis. He'd been at Elaine Person's house. We talked to Elaine from her home in Altamont. She says Jalik opened up to her a little during his stay. She says he told her his parents washed his mouth out with soap. Was there anything else that Jalik told you that upset you or made you think it was this is a little odd? They had to use the outhouse in the wintertime. You know, and, and I asked him, I, I said, well, isn't it kind of cold? And he goes, no, nah, it's, it's only bad if I go out there after my little brother's been there and he peed all over the seat. And, and we talked about the fact that he had an, and his parents had bought him an electric guitar. And I said, well, you don't have any electricity. How, how do you do that? And they would crank up a generator and they'd have electricity for a short period of time. After we got back from our trip to Raven Way, we sat in Wendy's dining room in Greenwich, talking through the story. When we talk about the portion of Jalik's life that involves foster care and adoption, it hits some very familiar notes for Wendy. Foster care is not something you would enter into lightly. She herself has been through foster parent training. She adopted a child. She says there are hours of classes to sit through to become certified. It's a huge commitment because many of these children come to you traumatized. They have been taken away from their parents. 
they're upset. It takes an emotional toll on a person to be a foster parent. And that's why a lot of people do not do it. Wendy has met Jalik. Stephen Kerr coached her son's soccer team in 2004. Jalik wasn't on the team. His older brother was. But he tagged along to games and practices. He would walk behind Stephen with one hand on his shoulder the whole time and not talk to anybody, never smile. Jalik came to her house once. She hosted an end-of-season pizza party for the team and their parents. It's always disturbed me that nothing, that, that Jalik was never found. No one was ever brought to justice if, you know, he, he was killed. Yeah, I just, I just want to find the answer. Barbara really hasn't spoken to her daughter or son-in-law since 2008. She says Jocelyn cut off contact with her around the same time they stopped talking to police and media. Barbara says Jocelyn asked her to stop searching for Jalik, and when Barbara refused, she says that was the end of their relationship. For the first year, I try, I, I would send the children uh, presents on their birthday, and they would always be returned to me. Uh, I sent a letter or two, it was returned. Um, when I would call, she'd just hang up if she answered the phone. So over the years, I probably heard her voice maybe three times, because most of the time it just goes to an answering machine. Before they became estranged, Barbara says she was very close with her daughter and grandchildren. At the time, Wendy spoke with Barbara really in Greenwich. Jocelyn's oldest son was getting married. She says she wasn't invited to the wedding. Where is he getting married in Vermont? He's getting married in Brooklyn. And you won't. And be- I know I've missed a lot of milestones. This one's hard. Next week on Rainwalker, The Lost Boy, we'll take a look at the first days of the investigation into Jalik's disappearance. And you know, we can all name the Gabby Petitos, the Natalie Holloway, the Chandra Levies, and many more, but can any of your listeners name a person of color that has garnered the same level of national media coverage? They can't, and guess why? Because it doesn't happen. Rain Walker, The Lost Boy, is a Times Union podcast. This series was produced and edited by Wendy Libertor and myself, Jessica Marshall. We had help from Lauren Stanforth, Susan Mahalik, Lori Todd, Erica Smith, Tom Crocker, Jeff Shearer, and Casey Seiler. Special thanks to Dan Higgins. Archival report footage came from local stations Albany's CBS 6, News Channel 13, and News 10, and from Find Our Missing. Our theme song is As You Make the Bed by Amos Noah. <laughs>